Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Netflix is reeling from a backlash against comedian Dave Chappelle's latest special. Critics say it's transphobic. Plus, Hollywood celebrities from Adele to Jonah Hill speak up against fan obsession about their weight loss. And the Rolling Stones remove one of the most popular songs from their tour set list over lyrics referencing slavery. Those stories and more on our Pop Culture Roundtable. Later in the show, the MacArthur Foundation released the names of its Class of 2021 Genius Fellows earlier this month. They join an exclusive group of previous fellows who have demonstrated outstanding talent in their fields. There are a variety of different problems we like to study, everything from how climate shapes landscapes on Earth to landscapes on other planets to landscapes and humans, but rivers are really the common thread that unites all of those things. MIT professor and geomorphologist Taylor Perrone is one of three local awardees, part of our series, The Genius Next Door. But first, joining me remotely, Michael Jeffries, Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Hi, Michael. Hi, Kelly. Also with me, Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Callie. All right, we're jumping in on quite the controversy about Dave Chappelle, well-known comedian, known for edgy comedy. Michael, you wrote a whole book about stand-up comedy, and he's a master at that. Many people have called him brilliant. But this latest special on Netflix, which is called The Closer, has really stirred quite a lot of backlash because of its content. Uh, Some say it's ongoing content, very harshly directed at the trans community. And so one employee has been fired for releasing data about it. There was an employee walkout very recently, last couple of days. There more may have happened since the taping of this episode, but it's it's quite something. In addition to that, um, the head of Netflix has said, though he's standing by Dave Chappelle's special, that he maybe could have handled this a lot different, and he screwed up, he says. He admits he screwed up amid the controversy. Let's take a listen to a clip from the controversial special by Dave Chappelle called The Closer. Gender is a fact. This is a fact. Every human being in this room, every human being on Earth, had to pass through the legs of a woman to be on Earth. TERF is an acronym. Stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists. This is a real thing. This is a group of women that hate transgender, they don't hate transgender women, but they look at trans women the way we blacks might look at blackface. I'm team turf. I agree. I agree, man. Gender is a fact. So the issue is transphobia and whether or not the content is such and whether or not, if it is such, 
Should the special be pulled? Is this dangerous material, et cetera, et cetera? You can start, Michael. I think that, you know, there are a few things going on here. One of the underlying discussions, or it's not really underlying, but it's happening at the same time as, right, how could someone who has been so sharp with respect to his critique of racism and um, the conditions of Black America, how could someone who understands the social justice implications of that discussion be so unaware of or callous to the ways that social injustices continue to plague folks in the trans community and importantly, erase the fact that there are so many black queer folk and black trans folk who are or who were his greatest fans, right? So that's one of the things that's going on here is there's an erasure of black queerness and black trans folk that really uh, nobody should stand for. And then with respect to the way Netflix has handled this, I understand that the CEO has released this statement talking about he should have led with more humanity and considered the conditions of his employees and things of that nature. But you kind of have to ask yourself as a company and as an artist, if you're willing to pay the price for this. And, and to me, this is, this is simple. No one is saying Dave Chappelle shouldn't have the freedom to say what he wants, but he does not deserve, right, the benefit of the doubt. He does not deserve to be sort of shielded from criticism when he steps out and he has consistently stepped out and punched down at a vulnerable community of folks. This is not a one-time transgression for him. This is a pattern of behavior. And he and those who give him the platform should have to deal with the consequences of that. So uh, continuing, Rachel, one of the things that's come out of this, a lot of trans people are, as one can imagine, have come to the fore talking about it and saying this is real. This is connected to real world harm that, as Michael has said, black and queer trans folk are literally in the crosshairs. Um, they're murdered every day. The numbers are high. They're discriminated against in many other ways. So this has real world consequences. It's not just you can talk about it from your place of freedom of speech and, and that's okay. Um, even if we were uncomfortable with what you said, this this has some this is far deeper than that. In addition to that, though, Dave Chappelle has come back and said, however, you know, listen, I have a, a trans person open for my act. I trans person died and now I, I provide for uh, the person's family. You know, how how could I be in saying this in any way transphobic? So I'd like you to respond to that. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, and, and you were right that there was a demonstration on Wednesday objecting to his remarks. And I know people defend comedians by saying they're only trying to be funny. But what he said was very disturbing, you know, and the same thing has um, been said about other cultural forms, right? Like people used to say minstrelsy was trying to be funny. Or, you know, in the, I don't know, in the TV sitcom, I Live Lucy, numerous times Lucy's husband's threatened to hit her. So, you know, I think Chappelle should definitely apologize. I think that people should boycott him. You know, I stopped reading J.K. Rowling after she came out as anti-trans. 
And yes, you are right that, you know, there are many, many times trans people are found dead in this country. And it is especially true about black trans people. So I think Netflix should ban him, frankly. Michael, are there any actions you would like to see happen if you were in control of this? Um, certainly, you know, I, I think one piece of this is what should Chappelle himself do? I, I think this is a, this is a, obviously it's a difficult spot. It's a difficult spot that he's created for himself. What's in his heart here, you know, you've seen various folks come out and defend him and say, I know him well, he doesn't have a transphobic bone in his body, <laughs> that, that sort of thing that those of us who are so familiar with racist apologies are, uh, are, are, you know, accustomed to, but this time, it's really not about what he feels in his heart. It's, how does he act and how does he take accountability from this point forward? It's not clear to me that pulling the special from Netflix damages him or his career in any way, especially if he were the one to come into. I think we, we can take a kind of aspirational approach here. What if what we imagined was Chappelle himself said, you know what? I've asked the company to take this down. I hear you. Mm -hmm. I understand the harm, the potential for harm the potential for harm is real and it's not a risk that I need to sort of place on my fans or, or anyone else who might be affected by this material. So I want to take the initiative to take it down because I know I can be funny without it. I know I can continue to earn a living without it. It doesn't make me a worse person or a worse comedian to take it down. I think that's the kind of aspiration that we can kind of look for here is some kind of, not only an apology, but some kind of real accountability that recognizes the harm and works toward restitution. I think he should take it down and I think he should make a donation to some trans organization. Mm. Can I say one more thing about- mm, Go ahead, Michael. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I would say about this is, I think, again, if you're rooting for Chappelle somehow through all of this, right, you know, I think one thing you can ask yourself as a fan of his is what do you want the next 10, 15 years of what has been a remarkable career? What do you want the next 10 or 15 years of his career to look like? Do you want to continue to replay these kind of controversies and build a legacy that's about him dying on this ridiculous and hurtful hill? Or do you want to see real growth as a person, as an artist, as a performer? If you want growth, if you want more and better material, right? Then you want him to take some ownership of this because you want more and better from him. So I think that that's where, you know, some of the hope might lie. Hopefully he and his team will realize, you know, it's time for us to close this chapter. It was a mistake and I can be better than this. I aspire to be better than this. And I think if we encourage that kind of direction from everyone involved, maybe we can get to a better place. Hmm. All right. Well, the Rolling Stones reluctantly, I think, are trying to get to a better place um, because of similar kinds of concerns. Uh, people may know they have a very popular song called Brown Sugar. I have to say, this is one of those situations where I've never listened to the lyrics. I only know the chorus. Um, and so I want everybody along with me now, I'm going to play a clip from it to pay attention to the lyrics.
So in fact, the lyrics are a reference to uh, the period of time where there were enslaved women being used to play out the sexual fantasies uh, and then some of the people who, quote unquote, owned them. And so the brown sugar in the, the, the lyrics are, you taste so good like a young girl should. It's, these are all rather shocking lyrics to me, I have to say, not having paid atten- close attention to this. And there's blowback and people are saying, you know, that really is not what you need to be playing on a constant basis. Rachel, you're into the music thing very heavily. Is this a good move for them? I, it's a good move for them. I mean, I, I don't trust their assertions. They're saying that they're doing it because people don't understand what they're saying. And I think they're covering up their original intentions. They're saying that they're calling out slavery. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's the, necessarily the case. But I have, I have always found the song offensive, even though I like the Stones overall. And it's not their only offensive song either, which also leads me to think of it. And they have also said that they're not necessarily going to like stop performing it forever. But whatever their intentions or assertions are, I think that A, it's good for them to remove it. And B, it it hosts like useful conversations about music that is both racist and sexist and so forth. Michael, some time ago, I guess, initially, people thought the lyrics were actually in reference to one of his past relationships with a black woman, which even even then, these don't seem to add up, but whatever. (laughs) Um, So that was another thing that came out in this discussion from them is that, hey, you know, when we first started performing this, this is our way of speaking back to slavery. It's actually a tribute to black women, blah, 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 as Rachel has said. Your response? I think the first piece of this is, quite honestly, that black women's voices need to be heard about this issue. Those of us who are not black women may have our own opinions about uh, the intent, the impact, etc. But this is a place where, again, I think the most crucial contributions to the conversation are going to come from black women who have been having these kinds of conversations and doing this kind of analysis, explaining the history of the fetishization of black women and black sexuality uh, far longer than than I have. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, you know, there's a kind of, there's a little bit of a similarity here between this and the Chappelle issue. And that is, you know, do the Stones want to continue to have to have this conversation? Can they grow at all from this, even at the end of what's been a story career? The fact that they pulled the song from their tour indicates to me that their sensitivity to these issues is growing. And that doesn't excuse the potential harm or validate the intent. But again, it does show potential for growth and perhaps repair. And as Rachel said, one of the things that it does is it forces us to have these conversations about not only the the history, but what continues to go on today with respect to the way that Black women's sexuality policed with the way that Black women are sexually assaulted. And there's never a bad time to be drawing attention to these issues because the alternative is, you know, they get ignored and the injustice continues. 
If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Michael Jeffries, Dean of Academic Affairs at Wellesley College, and Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. It's our Pop Culture Roundtable. I just want your quick take on Squid Game. So Netflix, which is notoriously quiet about how many millions of folks watch their programs, this time has announced that 142 million households have watched this Korean drama. Essentially, for people who have not heard about it, it mimics a number of childhood games, like Red Light, Green Light, um, but it's a dangerous game where, where the participants are trying to win money for survival. And if they don't win, however, they get killed. And it's rather messily violent in the way that they are killed. This is why I'm not watching it. Um, I didn't even take a peek at it because I don't like that kind of stuff. But 142 million Netflix households do. And apparently it's number one in 94 countries, including the U.S., what does it say about us that this is an extremely popular show? Rachel? Well, first of all, I th- actually think like COVID had had more people spending time watching television. What I well, seriously, I I agree with you, Callie. I'm not able to watch shows that violent for for long. Um, but I do appreciate it calling out working class exploitation. Hmm. Because everybody everybody is playing because they they don't have enough money to survive. Everybody's playing so they don't have enough money to survive. And so that, you know, yeah. And that means that, um, you know, it's, you can just sort of like compare it to, I don't know, everybody takes jobs that exploit them because they don't have enough money to survive or some people, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I you hadn't thought about it that way. Michael? What it made me think of right away was the uh, 2019 film um, Parasite hmm. yes. by Bong Joon-ho. And it's, again, set in... South Korea, and really a very pointed critique of capitalism, the exploitation of workers, the kind of impossibility, the kind of, the kind of long odds that folks face if you're someone who's trying to climb the ladder of social mobility. And there's a kind of absurdity to the show and the film because they seem to be just like just close enough to something that could happen in real life, but not quite. Obviously, the violence in both cases, there are extremely bloody scenes in, in, in both cases. Uh, so that sort of tips it over into the absurd and the bizarre. And that tip into the absurd and the bizarre, I, I would argue, actually makes us comfortable because it keeps it in the realm of fantasy, right? Like it's so bloody that the critique sort of becomes more palatable because you can push it off as something fantastic and almost ridiculous. When really the lessons of the show are hitting home for global audiences, right? I mean, nobody could have predicted, not nobody, I shouldn't say that. Perhaps many folks should have predicted that Parasite would have been the hit that it was in the States because the conditions of capitalism are global conditions. The criticism of Squid Game and the criticism of Parasite, despite the fact that they originate in South Korea, are applicable to all life in all quote unquote developed countries, right? Where workers don't have much of a shot, where social mobility is oftentimes an illusion. And the cruelty of that reality uh, gets put on display for everyone to see. So, so that's the connection that I made, but it's an incredible success. 
All right. Well, I was curious about that. Um, and I don't think there's uh, any sign of it slacking off at any point soon. So I think they're talking about more and more seasons of it. So we'll see how it goes. Turning now to the use of very light-skinned actresses to portray real-life people who are dark-skinned, as it turns out. This is yet another Netflix situation. They've hired from the Atlanta series an actress, Zazie Beetz, to play Mary Fields, who was better known as Stagecoach Mary, or colloquially, Black Mary, because she was plus-size and dark-skinned. Um, Zazie is n- neither. She's very fair-skinned and quite slim. And the objection is that this is not the first time that... Uh, this kind of uh, uh, colorism has come into play when casting. And the time that I was most aware of recently was from the 2016 film Nina, uh, which actress Zoe Saldana elected to play the title character. Again, Nina Simone was a dark-skinned woman of some note. Her dark skin she used as part of her political commentary, actually. That was part of her identity and her political commentary. So first, here's a clip from the 2016 film Nina, featuring actress Zoe Saldana. Black is the color of my All right, that was a clip from the movie. This is actress Zoe Saldana, who originally defended her right to play this role, apologizing for playing it later. I should have never played Nina. Um, I should have done everything in my power with the leverage that I had 10 years ago, which was a different leverage, but it was leverage nonetheless. I should have tried everything in my power to cast a black woman to play an exceptionally perfect black woman. She deserved better. Why is this important, Rachel? People are going to listen to this and say, okay, she's an actress. Can't she just portray anybody? What's the big deal? No, it's not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's important because, well, first of all, it's about skin tone and body size. And it's important for multiple reasons. Like one is... I think that it shows different requirements for women than men. And we need to sort of level that out across the country. I did watch Atlanta, which was really depressing. And she's a very good actress, actor, but she should not play stagecoach Mary. And I just feel like the obsession with body size is not okay. Everybody, everybody should feel they're represented in films. Michael, is this a kind of erasure? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think there are a few things going on here. Part of the problem here is that you're actually erasing the history and distorting the historical experience, right? To pretend as if someone like Nina Simone or Stagecoach Mary wasn't treated a particular way because their skin was on the darker side is to really distort the historical record because we know that dark-skinned folk are not treated the same way as light-skinned folk, right? So that's the first piece of this. And second, you're perpetuating, right, the kind of glorification and celebration of light skin, quite frankly. And, And you see it across the entire 
film industry, right? You have white actors playing roles that should have been played by Asian folk or uh, Latinx folk. The same kinds of things are happening. And it's an industry-wide problem with not only cultural implications, but also economic and power implications within the business because you're perpetuating that colorism within the industry itself. And that impacts people's jobs, people's ability to get films made, uh, people's ability to act in films, et cetera. So there are industry implications, there are cultural implications, and there are historical implications. Um, well, speaking of body image, there are several stars that have come forward to say how angry and upset they are about the obsession about their body size. Rebel Wilson, actress, actor Jonah Hill, and singer Adele. All three of these actors have lost a great amount of weight or have some kind of weight fluctuation. And they say it's beyond a kind of curiosity with fans now. It's an obsession. And it is up not only upsetting to them, but a problem. And I'd love you all to respond to that. I'll start with you, Michael. Yeah, it certainly is a problem. We know this is a health issue, a health crisis. Uh, certainly for women, it has been for a long time and also for men. And it's extremely important for celebrities to speak out about the ways they experience these both criticisms and compliments, right? Because one of the things that's been revealed is folks are celebrating Adele and celebrating Jonah Hill, perhaps, and others who are slimming down, but they don't hear it as a celebration, right? They continue to hear it as a criticism as a warning that, right, you better not slip up and, and go back to the way that you were. So, I mean, and the other thing about it is these are folks who have a platform and have tremendous visibility and who work in the space of celebrity. But we can't fool ourselves into thinking this is just a problem for celebrities, right? This isn't just about a culture of criticism and body policing and celebrities. This is about a culture of criticism and body policing at every strata of our society, childhood on up, every age. And if we don't take some of those lessons where people are highly visible and start applying them in other arenas of our life, we're gonna lose the potential value of talking about the kind of correction that's needed here. So, so I hope that we don't kind of write this off as just like a celebrity problem, because it's not. This is a public health crisis, truly. Rachel? No, right. You're you're right, Michael. I mean, in fact, I know somebody who was recently worried about finding a job because of her body size. And I like tried to be comforting to her, but she had reasons not to be comforted by what I said. So I, I absolutely agree that this does talk up to what our national values are. And I also feel like celebrities should have private lives, right? I mean, why, why do we talk about their bodies? I think because people feel like they own them if they're super famous. I actually <laughs> I do think that. I, no, I, I know. <laughs> I do think that. But I, I just think it's wrong. And um, there should be like a range of acceptable body sizes. And that's it. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Michael Jeffries of Wellesley College and Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston. It's our Pop Culture Roundtable. 
Um, it's that time of year again, so I can't let you all go without talking about Halloween costumes, sometimes inappropriateness. So there's a few out there now. There's one, Harriet Tubman. The advertising has a young black girl in the costume and then a young white girl wearing the clothing of Susan B. Anthony, who was a voting rights pioneer. There are some squid game costumes. And then lo and behold, there's a costume of Bernie Sanders at the inauguration, except they, in one instance, sexied it up. I'm using language from the marketing. It's not even so specific to these costumes, but just about this period of time every year where people seem to go off the edge in error, insulting and appropriating. Rachel, you can start. I think that selling squid game costumes kind of undercuts the class-based assertions of the show. And Sanders defenses people without equal access to health care and education as well. I mean, it's it's kind of offensive to me when people like appropriate things. And why would you spend money to look like somebody who's defense of people without equal access to health care and education? Um, so, Michael, some people are going to say, can you just lighten up? Does it really have to be this serious? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there, you know, there, there are differences. Not all costumes of celebrities are it's sort of inherently offensive or offensive or not all costumes of historical figures are inherently offensive, right? If the Harriet Tubman costume comes with blackface, right, that's a whole different discussion <laughs> than if it than if it doesn't. I, I think that that's the that's that's part of the thing here is if if part of what you're doing to kind of achieve the effect of the historical figure or the celebrity is playing with kind of uh, the the a racial stigma or a gender stigma or a class a, a, a stigma that you associate with a certain class position we can't have that but is it is it allowable for folks to dress up from folks uh, from different periods of American history or other history um, absolutely right I mean I don't really think that that's much of the issue so we we've got to be able to have fun but not let our guard down when it comes to some of the insensitivity. Mm. Um, Jojo Siwa is an actress who came out as gay in January. She's participating in Dancing with the Stars, and she was paired with Jenna Johnson, who is not gay, if in case people wonder, as her partner and making it the show's first same-sex couple. Revolutionary? Interesting? Why are we talking about it? What's your response, Rachel? I mean, I again, I think that that really shows social progress. And it shows that, you know, popular culture is political. And I approve. All right, Michael. Yeah, it's long overdue, honestly. Um, I, I don't know if all of our listeners realize how popular Jojo Siwa is. I have younger people in my house <laughs> <laughs> for whom uh, for whom this is like a, a very relevant pop cultural figure. And we shouldn't underestimate the kinds of uh, effects that these performances have on young people. Um, you know, I would I would just add that Siwa herself commented on it and has been public about her sexuality for some time now. And that's the other piece of this. It wasn't just a performance without any commentary. Uh, she really stepped out when she first discussed her sexuality and she stepped up again in, in talking about the simple fact that she should be able to dance with whoever she wants to. Uh, hmm. There's there's truly no, nothing revolution. There shouldn't be anything revolutionary about that. Uh, so, again, like I said, it's long overdue. All right. Well, I thank both of you for joining me on these hot pop culture topics. Thank you, Callie. Thanks. 
Michael Jeffries is Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Rachel Rubin is Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Coming up, he studies how landscapes have evolved on Earth and other planets. MIT professor Taylor Perrone is a geomorphologist and one of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellows, one of three who are local. We talk with Professor Perrone for our series, The Genius Next Door. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. 